So, this morning, we're continuing in our series in the life of David. And uh, as you recall from last week, David has spent several years on the run. Remember, God anointed Saul uh, by by means of of the prophet Judge Samuel. Uh, He anointed Saul as the king of Israel. But Saul, despite his many advantages, ended up being a mess. He ended up being faithless. He proved to be an unworthy king. And uh, God then essentially said, okay, we have another king that we're going to place over Israel. His name is David. Samuel anointed him. But Saul, for one, was not given the memo immediately. And then Saul, after he realized that David was going to be taking his place, he didn't exactly embrace this change of affairs. And so we, we uh, last week we're talking about the ten chapters where David is out in the wilderness running away from Saul or eventually gets himself into a position where he's, um, he's teamed up with, uh, with the Philistines, with Israel's enemies, um, and he's, he's carved out a, a spot for himself, for him and, and for his guys. They have their own uh, town. Uh, the Philistines think that David's raiding uh, Israel, <clears throat> raiding Judah. He's actually raiding other peoples, uh, but he didn't uh, think it necessary to uh, advise the Philistines of this. Uh, but w- at the end of the book of 1 Samuel, in chapter 31, we have the end of the story of King Saul. We read that the Philistines fought against Israel. And the Israelites fled before the many fell slain on Mount Gilboa, which is way up to the north, uh, just south of the Sea of Galilee. The Philistines pressed hard after Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons Jonathan, who was David's best friend, Abinadab and Malkishua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. And Saul said, to his armor-bearer, draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But his armor-bearer was terrified and wouldn't do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When the armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armor-bearer and all his men died together that same day. When the Israelites along the valley and those across the Jordan saw that the Israelite army had fled and that Saul and his sons had died, they abandoned their towns and they fled. And the Philistines came and occupied them. Then the next day when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head, stripped off his armor, and sent messages throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among their people. They put his armor in the temple of the Ashtorets, and they fastened his body to the wall of Beit Shan. And so when 2 Samuel starts, we get the story of David hearing this news. By the way, 2 Samuel uh, we have in our Bibles is a separate book. Uh, the reason, anybody know the reason we have a 2 Samuel? What's that? Yeah, the, the first Samuel is too long. Uh, to, uh, if you take First and Second Samuel together, they're too long to have as one scroll. 
and so you kind of had to split it in two. In fact, some people think really the first and second Samuel and first and second Kings are sort of four parts of, of one huge long scroll. And so we just have first and second Samuel because at some point the scrolls get too unwieldy. So really you should think of this as just a continuation of the story. After the death of Saul, David returned from defeating the Amalekites. He stayed in Ziklag, his, uh, uh, his town, for two days. And on the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and with dust on his head. When he came to David, he fell to the ground to pay him honor. Where have you come from? David asked him. He answered, I've escaped from the Israelite camp. Well, what happened, David asked. Tell me. He said, the men fled from the battle. Many of them fell and died. And Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. And David said to the young man who brought him the report, well, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? Well, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa the young man said, and there was Saul leaning on his spear with the chariots and riders almost upon him. And when he turned around and saw me, he called out to me and I said, what can I do? He asked me, who are you? I'm an Amalekite, I answered. And then he said to me, stand over me and kill me. I'm in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. So I stood over him and killed him because I knew that after he had fallen, he could not survive. And I took the crown that was on his head and the band on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. And David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the army of the Lord and the house of Israel because they'd fallen by the sword. Now if you're paying attention, you'll notice that that story that this Amalekite tells isn't exactly the story that the author gives us in chapter 31, is it? Chapter 31 doesn't mention an Amalekite coming along and being asked to finish Saul off. It doesn't mention Saul leaning on his spear. It says Saul asked his own armor bearer to run him through. His armor bearer was afraid to do it, wouldn't do it, so Saul took his own life. It seems we have an enterprising Amalekite who has in mind that he can tell a story to King David that is going to win him honor and get him a place in David's good graces. You can imagine him having stripped this crown and this armband off of Saul, initially thinking, wow, I could probably get a nice chunk of change for this, and then thinking, hey, what if I bring this to David? Oh, I'll look like a hero because I helped out Saul in his moment of need. He was wrong about this. Because David says to the young man who brought this report, so where are you from? He says, I'm the son of a resident alien. I'm an Amalekite. He answered. David said, why were you not afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And David called one of his men and said, go strike him down. So he struck him down and he died. For David had said to him, your blood be on your own head. Your own mouth testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. The application here is if you happen to strip valuable things off of a king, don't try telling his successor that you mercy killed him. Just go ahead and go to the gold guy and get some cash for your gold. <laughs> and then David took up this lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan. He ordered that the men of Judah be taught this lament of the bow which is written in the book of Jasher. Your glory, O Israel, lies slain on your heights. How the mighty have fallen. 
Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Let the daughters of the Philistines be glad. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. O mountains of Gilboa, may you have neither dew nor rain nor fields that yield offerings of grain. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled. The shield of Saul no longer rubbed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. The sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and gracious. And in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. How the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. How the mighty have fallen. The weapons of war have perished. You know, we read this, we hear this lament. And I think we have to notice that the culture out of which David is writing feels a little different from ours 3,000 years later, doesn't it? And you see the, the uh, little meme on the cover of your bulletin where little bunny Fufu is lamenting all those field mice that he bopped on the head. Um, that's, that's funny to us now, but David would never have even understood that. In fact, probably people in our own culture wouldn't have understood that thought 150 years ago. This idea of being somehow ashamed of having achieved glory through violence is a fairly recent innovation in human history. And so I, I actually looked back to try to get into thinking along this way because it's so different from the way the way we think now. I, I went back and I, I looked at Homer's Iliad, which describes events that happened probably about the same time as, uh, as the story we have here. By the way, if anybody digs uh, Tom Clancy novels, uh, Homer was like the original Tom Clancy. Except, you know, like military technology of that time, instead of talking about like bullet gauges, he talks about like how heavy spears are and, and, uh, and, and how long the, the, uh, the swords are and how many layers are on the shields. He really gets into that stuff. And he also gets into in, in, in quite a lot of detail how people die. Um, but I looked at some of the laments in the Iliad and I was struck by how different they are from what we find here in 2 Samuel. So, for example, uh, Achilles, who's um, lamenting his friend Patroclus, he says, Time was when you, so ill-fated my dearest comrade, would, lay, would yourself lay out an enjoyable meal in our hut, quickly and skillfully, while the Achaeans were impatient to bring grievous warfare against the horse-breaking Trojans. So Achilles here is talking about when, back when he was sulking in his tent instead of fighting against Troy. And his friend Patroclus basically was doing uh, some catering. But now here you lie, flesh rent, and my heart's indifferent to food and drink, though both are to hand, though through yearning for you. No other worse thing is there that I could suffer, not even news of the death of my own father, who perhaps now in Pythiae is 
shedding heavy round tears for the loss of a son such as I am, who now in a foreign land, all because of hateful Helen and at war with the Trojans, not even were it my own dear son now being raised on Skyros, if indeed it is true that God like Neoptolemus still lives. And at this point, we have no reason to believe otherwise. Until now, the heart in my breast had cherished the hope that I alone should die far from horse-grazing Argos here at Troy, but that you should return to Phythia, that you'd pick up my son in your swift black ship from Skyros and show him everything that was mine, my possessions, my servants, my splendid high-roofed house, since by now I suppose that Peleus must either be at last dead or, if barely alive still, bowed down by the inroads of loathsome old age and by waiting forever to hear unhappy tidings of me that at last I've perished. This isn't so much a lament for Patroclus, is it? As it is Achilles sharing his feelings about himself. He's lamenting his own sadness. He's lamenting his own sense of loss, his own pain. Nothing wrong with that. But it's not really a lament for Patroclus. Later on when Achilles kills Hector, same thing, his his wife laments for Hector, but mostly she's lamenting the fact that she's going to have to raise his son alone and that that she's going to be without him. But in this passage here, in this lament of David for Saul and for Jonathan. Sure, David mentions his pain. He mentions his his grief over the loss of Jonathan. But mostly he's talking about the greatness and the glory of these mighty warriors and the fact that they are now lost to Israel because their glory lies slain in the heights. These mighty men have fallen. He doesn't want this story broadcast among Israel's enemies, lest they be delighted, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. I think that would be a great name for a band, by the way, the daughters of the uncircumcised. Just saying. But he laments the fact that Saul's shield, symbolic of his, his power, as a warrior, has been defiled. It's no longer rubbed with oil. The, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back from the blood of the slain or from the flesh of the mighty. The sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. David is delighting in the fact that these men were victorious, that they gained glory by their skill in battle. These were men who were swifter than eagles, stronger than lions. And David talks about how because of Saul's exploits, he was able to bring wealth to his people. Again, this is, this is a different kind of culture from the one that we at least like to think of ourselves being in. But this is, I think we have to recognize, a very different thing that David is articulating from even what was going on just west of him in Greece. This idea of a lament being about the people who have died and not about your own feelings about that. There's a generosity to David. We saw that earlier on when his guys are are, uh, 
chasing after the folks who had pillaged their town and 200 of them can't, they basically say, look, I can't go any farther. I'm exhausted. And David said, it's fine. You hang out here. You watch the, watch the gear and the rest of us will go. And then wins the battle and they come back and then David shares all of the spoils equally. And the people who went off to battle are like, what, what are you talking about? We went and fought. These guys just sat here by the bags. And David said, no, everybody, everybody was part of this effort. There's a, a generosity to David's spirit. And here too, there's a generosity to his spirit. Because remember, <laughs> these are the words of a guy lamenting the death of somebody who was trying to kill him for the last ten chapters. Right? And you wonder. David's there in his court surrounded by these other people that have been fighting with him, running with him away from Saul. And here David is lamenting the death of this person who's been trying to kill them. There's something different about David. There's something different about his spirit, about his attitude even to a defeated foe. And yeah, part of that is simply because he recognizes that Saul was the anointed king of Israel and that he was due respect and that he was due deference and that even though he had failed to live up to what his calling was. He still was Israel's king. But I think a lot of it does have to do with David's generosity of spirit. Miroslav Volf says, he's a theologian, he says, in a world of enmity, self-giving is the risky and hard work of love. There are no guarantees that self-giving will overcome enmity that the evildoers will not try to invade the space that the self has made and crush those willing to give themselves for the good of others. We'll have to resist such evildoers without betraying the commitment to self-giving, but though self-giving has no assurance of success, it does have the promise of eternity because it reflects the character of the Trinity. It's on account of self-giving that divine persons exist in a perfect community in which each is itself only by being inhabited by the others. Or, as Paul put it in Philippians, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be clutched onto or exploited for his own benefit, but he made himself nothing. He took on the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And if I stopped there, this message would be terrible news. If I just stopped there, I would be saying, you know, 
David was this really generous guy. And it kind of points to Jesus, who was the most generous, the most self-giving, the most self-sacrificing, the most loving person you could possibly imagine. And so what you need to do then is try really hard to be like them. You need to try really, really hard to take their good example and to imitate it. Go in peace. No, you're not going to go in peace. You're going to go in depression. Great. I don't feel like doing that. That's not where I live. People at the office make me mad and mess up and blame me for it. And I'm supposed to be generous and self-giving to them? Are you crazy? I'm going to have to show up and clean up somebody's mess Monday morning as usual. My kids, now mine, of course, are wonderful, but uh, you may be saying, my kids, they're, they're thankless. They're graceless. I pour myself out for them. There's a great Onion article about, uh, about uh, how uh, mother, mother continues giving unconditional love to girl who just 15-year-old girl who just cussed her out in the middle of justice. You may be thinking, this is hard. This is hard work. Hard to be so generous, to be so gracious. And I know I should, and great. So I show up here at church, and now this guy tells me, yep, you should feel really bad because you're not, and you should try really hard. That is not the gospel, my friends. That is not the message that Jesus has for us. Because Paul doesn't stop at saying, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He doesn't just say, hey, Jesus is a great example. You should imitate him in your attitude and in your deeds. And therefore, you've always obeyed. I want you to obey more and work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What he says next, without which this is not good news. He says, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. See, in our human nature, we are not generous. In our human nature, we are not gracious. In our human nature, we want people who have been defeated by us to be ground into the dust and humiliated. But God loves us too much to leave us that way. He forgives our pettiness. He forgives our lack of graciousness. He forgives us when unlike Jesus, we do clutch on to privileges, cling on to things for our own advantage, look to see where we can get an edge on somebody else, where we choose to maintain a posture of self-righteousness instead of humility. God forgives that and He works within us to transform us into Christ's image, to make us more and more like his son, who, being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to clutch onto for his own advantage, but, but he made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to 
the glory of God the Father. Amen.